Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we examine some of the key headlines that affect the asset and wealth management industry across Hong Kong, Singapore and mainland China. This episode, we're looking at events that happened across the week of March 29 to April 2nd. So let's dive in. Down in Singapore, Fine News Asia reports that the chief executive of DBS, a Singapore bank, Mr. Prish Gupta, has outlined the strategy for DBS in China. The strategy appears to focus on three pillars, a securities joint venture, a consumer finance woofie, and the Greater Bay Area. DBS received regulatory approval from CSRC back in December 2020 for its securities joint venture, in which it is the majority shareholder and has four Chinese partners. According to Mr. Gupta, the securities firm is expected to be operational in a few weeks. DBS currently holds a 15% stake in China Post Consumer Finance, the consumer lending entity of the Postal Savings Bank of China, and according to the announcement, is seeking to establish a consumer finance woofie on its own. According to the People's Bank of China, consumer finance tripled between 2014 to 2019, before dropping off due to the impact of COVID-19, and as China wages war on peer-to-peer lenders and fintechs. Going forward, growth is likely to increase from traditional lenders and institutions, so DBS could be looking to tap into this expected growth following their experience with their joint venture. Finally, with regards to the Greater Bay Area, as DBS has branches across Guangdong Province and Hong Kong, it is well positioned to support the various industry-specific initiatives being launched within the zone. And of course, the opportunities presented with the Wealth Management Connect program. Moving on, JP Morgan Asset Management, the asset management arm of the US bank, has registered two more sustainable funds in Singapore, following the one registered last year, as reported by Fund Selector Asia. Shireen Bun, CEO for Singapore and Southeast Asia at JP Morgan AM, noted that Singaporeans were increasingly looking towards sustainable investment criteria when selecting investments, and noted the focus of MAS in directing the financial sector towards stronger sustainability standards, as highlighted in an earlier episode. Additionally, Maitri Asset Management, a Singapore-based asset manager which was previously a family office, has joined more than 40 other asset managers signing up to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, an initiative launched in December 2020 in order to support the goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 under the Paris Climate Agreement. Fintech News Singapore reports that CGS CIMB Securities International, a joint venture between China Galaxy International Financial Holdings and CIMB Group, has launched a digital investment service which targets millennial and Gen Z investors in Singapore, called Prosperous. Prosperous provides investors with access to equities, mutual funds, and ETFs, with several, quote, big names, end quote, in the fund management industry already onboarded, with Fidelity and Franklin Templeton specifically cited. Whilst Prosperous provides investment insights, it is not a robo-advisory platform. Instead, users will have access to two applications, Build and Boost. The former assists investors in creating customized portfolios based on their financial status and risk tolerance. 
whilst the latter functions as a trading platform where users can execute their own trades. Currently, offerings encompass eight asset classes across 30 exchanges and 25 markets, totaling 30,000 investment products. Prosperous is targeting 10,000 investors and to launch in other Asian markets over the next 12 months. To entice new investors, those that sign up between April to June 2021 with a minimum 1,000 Singapore dollars stand to win vouchers of between 280 and 880 Singapore dollars to offset trading fees. Whilst it was noted that Asian retail investors tend to be trade-orientated rather than focused on long-term investing like their Western counterparts, this may not be the case for younger Asian investors, who generally have fewer assets and a greater awareness of long-term investing compared to their older retail investor counterparts. The introduction of Prosperous follows other securities firms across the region, and their moves to diversify their trading platforms to include more investment products and options. Another tie-up in Singapore was made in response to increasing concern from investors as to their ability to retire comfortably, with Fullerton Fund Management, a Singaporean asset manager backed by Sovereign Wealth Fund Tamasek, and MoneyAl, an online financial planning platform backed by the National Trade Union Council Enterprise, partnering to launch a multi-asset retirement solution, as reported by Ignites Asia. Whilst Singaporeans have the second pillar Central Provident Fund, there is increasing interest in Pillar 3 retirement solutions being brought to market. The new product, the Fullerton Moneyal Wise Income Solution, provides investors with three passive investment options based on different life stages. This product in partnership follows Schroders and DBS teaming up in 2020 to launch a retirement-focused multi-asset product, which also had three investment classes based on investors' life stages. And with increasing attention being given to retirement needs in the wake of COVID-19 and the increase in multi-asset products in the market, we may see similar products and partnerships emerge in the future. Fine News Asia reports that following a successful Series A financing round in which it raised 23 million US dollars, Endowas, a Singapore-based robo-advisory platform, has announced it will invest the funds to rapidly scale up its operations in Singapore and expand into Hong Kong, and then other key wealth hubs in APAC. Following its launch in 2019, Endowas has increased its client base 20-fold and is on track to achieve AUM of a billion Singapore dollars by the end of the first half of 2021, from Singapore business alone. As covered in a previous episode, they have also launched what they claim to be Asia's first ESG-advised portfolio. With Hong Kong and other APAC wealth centres also launching ESG and sustainable finance initiatives, it will be interesting to see how this ESG portfolio is positioned as they enter new markets and how it will assist in driving their success. Another Singaporean robo-advisor, Bamboo, which targets mass affluent investors with between $50,000 to $200,000 in AUM, wants to increase its client base to 1 million users, up from over 100,000 that it currently has. In order to achieve their goal of 1 million clients, Bamboo will also continue to expand their global presence, though as they already have a presence in Hong Kong, among other markets, they are looking to target US wealth. Whether Endowas follows the path that Bamboo is forging for Apex robo-advisors or pursues its own, 
remains to be seen. A statement from the Singapore Exchange notes that the Singaporean subsidiary of Haitong International, the Hong Kong-based subsidiary of Chinese broker Haitong, has joined the Singapore Exchange as a securities and derivatives clearing member and as a depository agent of the central depository. The move was trumpeted by SGX as one which would increase the financial links between Chinese investors and Singapore and follows several Chinese asset and wealth managers establishing operations in the Lion City as they increase their international expansion. Finally for Singapore, the Financial Times reports that Singapore is recording record numbers of new arbitration cases being filed within its jurisdiction, potentially signalling that its initiatives to become a leading dispute resolution centre are paying dividends, possibly at the expense of Hong Kong. Citing data from the Singapore International Arbitration Centre, FT notes that Singapore reached over 1,000 arbitration cases in 2020, up from under 400 in 2018, and with a total amount in dispute of 8.5 billion US dollars. A significant factor in this growth was from US parties, with arbitration cases brought by this segment growing 738% over 2019. Experts attributed the growth in this segment to Singapore's neutrality amid growing tensions between China and the USA. This jump stands in contrast to Hong Kong, which has experienced a relatively flat number of arbitration cases over the last five years, and which in 2020 had 483 new cases, with 8.8 billion US dollars in dispute, and with parties from 45 jurisdictions filing arbitration cases in the territory. Hong Kong has launched an aggressive marketing campaign to defend its reputation as a centre of arbitration following recent negative attention on its judicial system. Time will tell whether its campaigns pay off or whether Singapore seizes the opportunity to supplant it. Moving up to Hong Kong, according to FinTrack, the Canadian anti-money laundering agency, capital flows from Hong Kong to Canada made by electronic fund transfers reached 34.8 billion US dollars in 2020, up 10% from 2019 and 46% from 2016, as reported by Reuters. Whilst these outflows represent less than 2% of Hong Kong's bank deposits in 2020, the amount is likely to be larger, as FinTrack only tracks transfers over 10,000 Canadian dollars and legal transactions, transfers made via cryptocurrency, those between financial institutions and those which are under 10,000 Canadian dollars are not captured. One Canadian lender noted that they had seen a surge in deposits from Hong Kong from June 2020 and the introduction of the security law imposed on it from Beijing. Another noted that balances tied to Hong Kong phone numbers had increased 30% compared to 4% for non-Hong Kong phone numbers. With many Hong Kongers holding Canadian citizenship or PR, an estimated 300,000 Canadians reside in Hong Kong, Canada would be a natural destination for their savings and themselves should they choose to emigrate from the territory. Earlier in the year, and as covered in a previous episode, Bank of America estimated that $36.1 billion US dollars would transfer from Hong Kong to Britain over 2021, so it will be interesting to see how that forecast develops and which other countries benefit from capital leaving Hong Kong. Over 2020, Hong Kong also received 1.9 trillion US dollars in inflows, 
according to the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, which demonstrates its continued role as an international financial centre, and far more than offsets the outflows that have gone to Canada. Ignites Asia reports that the CEO of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, Eddie Yue, is tempering expectations around the launch of the Greater Bay Area Wealth Management Connect program. In a recent interview, Mr. Yue confirmed that he expected the Wealth Management Connect program to launch in 2021, but cautioned that investors would be investing in, quote, relatively low-risk products, end quote, and that initial capital flows would represent a small river rather than a big wave. Other industry commentators observed that large fund flows were not the goal of regulators and that the Wealth Management Connect was more of a test run for a closed-loop cross-border investment program. These views were reinforced by Mr. Yue, where he stated that mainland authorities would not allow non-Chinese investors to open Wealth Management Connect accounts in their local markets. Currently, investors will need to travel to the market that they want to buy products in, in person, to open an account. This requirement, along with a lack of clarity across other areas like eligible products at a concrete launch date, has been criticised by the industry. Despite the uncertainty, several asset and wealth managers in Hong Kong are positioning themselves for the imminent launch of the scheme, with HSBC and Standard Chartered establishing centres in the GBA, and Allianz Global Investors partnering with WeLab to proffer digital wealth management services across the area. Citigroup in particular is boosting its presence in Hong Kong, aiming to hire between 1,500 to 1,700 people as it expands its Hong Kong operations and looks to seize on opportunities presented by the GBA, as reported by the South China Morning Post. The increase in staff is expected to be across the board, with the bulk going towards frontline staff and a sizable portion going towards technology as the bank looks to expand its digital offerings, along with several hundred hires in wealth management. Cities Hong Kong operations also bucked the overall group trend in 2020, with consumer business seeing a 44% increase in net new money inflows. Wealth management revenues grew by 9%, institutional banking revenues were up 10%, and investment banking was up 61%. This performance contrasts against a decline in group profits of 41% over 2020. Angel Ng, City's CEO for Hong Kong and Macau, specifically highlighted the Wealth Management Connect as an opportunity for banks in Hong Kong, and also stated she doubted it would start as a, quote, big bang, end quote, opportunity. Instead, it would be an opportunity that builds over the years. City's moves follow similar ones by HSBC and Credit Suisse, both of whom have expressed a strong commitment to growing their wealth management practices across APAC. Also in Hong Kong, Tsai Xin reports that the People's Bank of China undertook a one-day pilot program whereby Hong Kong residents were able to use the digital renminbi to make payments for goods in Shenzhen. The short-lived trial follows developments in December 2020 when the Hong Kong Monetary Authority announced that it was preparing to test the digital renminbi for cross-border payments and additional arrangements between regulators in Thailand and the UAE to explore blockchain technology that will handle overseas transfers in digital currencies, which were announced in February 2021. The program could also potentially serve as a payments basis for the Wealth Management Connect program when it launches, and in facilitating other initiatives across the Greater Bay Area.
Finally, Hong Kong is planning to release a framework for SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, in June this year, with the goal of receiving public feedback and having the framework finalised for SPAC launches by the end of the year, as reported by Bloomberg. Currently, the territory is looking to implement stricter regulations than those found in US markets, with acquisitions made by SPACs reportedly needing to meet current IPO standards and have sponsor requirements. Singapore is also examining a SPACs framework, and the SGX released a consultation paper on 31 March, with the closing date for submission scheduled for 28 April. Within the consultation paper, stricter rules prevailed than found in the USA, mimicking the situation in Hong Kong. A spokesperson from SGX has noted that they expect the framework to be implemented by the middle of 2021, and we would expect the first SPAC to list by the end of the year. As both financial centres seek to bring SPACs to their markets, it will be interesting to see the differences and similarities in the final frameworks adopted, and if either market emerges as APAC's dominant SPAC hub. Moving up to China. China's fund markets have endured an interesting start to the year, with the China Securities Journal reporting that nearly 60% of private funds with equity strategies posted negative returns in 2021, as of March 25, with average year-to-date returns for the strategy amounting to negative 0.55% at that date. Also feeling the pinch of a declining market are China's newly emergent financial influencers who are facing increasing backlash from those that subscribe to their investment advice, as reported by Ignites Asia. Fund influencers gained prominence recently, as people took to social media to disseminate investment views during China's recent bull market, and gained followers in the tens or hundreds of thousands, with established asset managers even seeking them out when they launched funds to bring viewers and increased subscriptions. Now that markets have turned, the same influences are feeding the wrath of retail investors. It will be interesting to see if they re-emerge during the next bull market, or if regulators take steps to limit who can profit investment advice on social media channels, as many who offered advice had no formal qualifications. In order to guard against fund redemptions, and as they are perceived to be more stable investment options, several public fund management companies are launching closed-ended funds as the market retreats, with China Universal, Penghua, China Merchants, and ABCCA all launching closed-ended funds with lock-in periods of between three months to three years. Fundraising for new fund launches has also slumped, with newly established fund numbers dropping from 157 in January to 87 in March, with total asset values of around 20% from January's figures. Additionally, more than 20 equity funds have extended their fundraising period due to insufficient asset raising. As an example of some of the challenges FMCs are facing, the Bocom Schroeder's fund management company joint venture failed to raise sufficient funds for launching a new bond fund over a two-week fundraising period. This is reportedly the fifth time in 2021 to date that a public fund has failed to launch due to insufficient fundraising. Despite the recent drop in fundraising, total new fund IPOs reached 1.1 trillion RMB in the first quarter of 2021 the second-highest quarterly figure on record behind the 1.3 trillion RMB achieved in the third quarter of 2020. Among the fundraising activities, 
15 funds have achieved fundraising of more than 10 billion RMB during their fundraising periods. Over 2020, Chinese commercial banks had an excellent time selling mutual fund products to investors, with China Everbright Bank seeing their sales volumes increase nearly 300%, and China Merchants Bank and Citic Bank saw their non-money market fund product sales increase nearly 200%, among others. Banks remain a significant fund sales channel for fund management companies in China, and as they establish and begin operating their independent wealth management units, it will be interesting to see how their role in distributing FMC products, which may compete with their own wealth management products, evolves, especially as digital distribution channels increase in reach and scale. Looking at the activities of some foreign asset and wealth managers in China, Fund Selector Asia reports that Bailey Gifford, the Edinburgh-based asset manager, has received permission from AMAC to launch its first QDLP product. This product is a long-term growth fund and follows Bailey Gifford receiving its QDLP license in January 2021. It also follows the approval for Neuberger Berman for their fourth QDLP product, as reported in a previous episode. Whether the increase in QDLP products is an indication of increased desire for offshore investments from Chinese high-net-worth individuals and institutional investors, or something else, remains to be seen. Fund Selector Asia also reports that Winton Capital, a quantitative investment manager, has received regulatory approval to launch a PFM product via its Shanghai-based PFM Woofy. The fund, named the Winton China Multi Number no. 6 Private Securities Investment Fund, will be the 11th launched by Winton since they began PFM operations in China. Through a combination of factors, like localizing their staff and operating niche strategies, quantitative and commodities in this instance, Winton has become one of the most successful foreign PFM managers in China, with an AUM reportedly in excess of 2 billion RMB, when the majority of foreign PFMs operate with AUM of less than 500 million RMB. Asian Private Banker reports that shortly after announcing their expanded strategic partnership, JP Morgan Asset Management and China Merchants Bank Wealth Management have launched their first collaborative product, a 2035 target date fund which will invest in comprehensive and diversified global assets, and will also be the first fund to adopt a, quote, glide path design in China's bank wealth management space, end quote. The product is the second one launched collaboratively between JP Morgan Asset Management and CMB Wealth Management since their strategic partnership was announced back in 2019, and JP Morgan AM is utilizing its existing fund management company joint venture in China, CIFM, as investment advisor for the product, potentially highlighting how their expanding presence in China will be used in a mutually supporting manner. JP Morgan AM and CMB Wealth Management indicated that they intend to expand their collaborative product range across target date, multi-asset, and fixed income products, so no doubt we can expect future announcements of a similar nature. Tsai Shin reports that, in anticipation of receiving its retail fund management license, BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, has deregistered its PFM unit. The move should be one of the last ones needed before BlackRock's new unit, named BlackRock Fund Management, receives its public fund management license, at which point it will need to launch a product within six months. The process began back in August 2020, when BlackRock received permission from CSRC to establish a public fund management arm, the first foreign entity to do so, 
and records show that they withdrew their PFM registration on 23rd March 2021, liquidating three funds with collective AUM of circa a billion RMB. Five other foreign firms have applied for a retail fund license in China, with a previous episode noting that Van Axe application was progressing and regulators were asking how it intended to grow onshore business in China were it to be successful in its application. BlackRock also operates a QDLP business and retains its minority stake in the fund management company joint venture with Bank of China. Additionally, it is looking to form a wealth management joint venture with Tomasic and Bank of China. CityWire notes that VP Bank, a Luxembourg-headquartered bank, has signed a cooperation agreement with Highwin Investment Management, a Chinese wealth manager with global operations, whereby they will establish, via Highwin's Hong Kong operation, a platform to collaborate and meet the needs of wealthy Chinese for offshore wealth management services. VP Bank will effectively gain access to Highwin's client base, and Highwin will gain access to VP Bank's offshore wealth management offerings. Additionally, VP Bank will acquire 3.4% of Highwin Holdco for an undisclosed amount. The CEO of VP Bank Group, Paul Arney, stated that Asia was a top priority for their strategy and that they saw the collaboration with Highwin as an excellent opportunity for them to continue their momentum in Asia, especially among the rapidly growing Chinese high net worth individual populations in Hong Kong and Singapore. The CEO of Highwin Wealth, Wang Dian, said that the deal would accelerate the mission of Highwin in becoming a, quote, wealth manager of the highest international standards, end quote. Highwin claims to be China's third largest wealth management provider, based on 2019 transaction values, and the impact of the cooperation agreement on this ranking will be interesting to see as it develops. Ignite's Asia reports that Lombard Odia, a Swiss private bank, is seeking a strategic partnership in China to access the burgeoning wealth of the Middle Kingdom. Lombard Odia has built its Asia business of strategic partnerships across the region, giving it access to high net worth individuals in Thailand, Indonesia, Taiwan, and the Philippines, among others. And the Singapore-based CEO, Vincent Majnana, has stated that China is one of their priorities. In addition to VP Bank, as just mentioned, fellow Swiss bank Julius Baer announced it was looking for an onshore partner in China last year, and several other international asset and wealth managers have entered into joint ventures with Chinese banks to establish wealth management arms. Lombard Odia may pursue a non-traditional partner in its pursuit of Chinese high net worth individuals, and it will be interesting to see how it progresses on its journey. In market developments, FTSE Russell, a global index provider, has given final approval to include Chinese sovereign bonds in one of its major indices, a decision which is expected to attract billions of dollars in foreign capital into China's bond market, as reported by Caixin. Starting on October 29, 2021, FTSE Russell will start to add Chinese government bonds to its FTSE World Government Bond Index, with the inclusion being phased in over 36 months, instead of the standard 12 months. FTSE Russell stated that this longer phase-in period better reflects the passive investment nature of the trackers and addressed concerns around liquidity from investors. FTSE Russell estimates that once phase-in is complete, Chinese government bonds will account for 5.25% of the index, which HSBC equates to 130 billion US dollars in inflows, or an average monthly inflow of 3.6 billion US dollars, more than half of the 7 billion US dollars in inflows 
on average foreign investors purchased monthly over 2020. Whilst this weighting fell short of expectations for several banks, the People's Bank of China welcomed the move, and it is seen as a decision that will help internationalize the renminbi, which China's policymakers have long sought to do. Some investors had raised concerns over the inclusion of Chinese government bonds in the index, citing historical tensions with China. In response, FTSE Russell indicated that tailored versions of the index could be created to soothe these concerns. And finally, Reuters, citing data from Refinitiv, reports that China issued 15.7 billion US dollars in green bonds over the first quarter of 2021, surpassing the USA, who issued circa 15 billion US dollars and taking the top spot, nearly quadrupling the amount issued in 2020. The issuers included banks, property developers, power companies, and railway companies, and the proceeds will be deployed into green projects such as clean and renewable energy. As reported in a previous episode, Goldman Sachs estimates that China will need 16 trillion US dollars in investment to meet its climate goals. China International Capital Corporation, a Chinese investment bank, has upped this to an estimated 21.33 trillion US dollars of debt financing over the next 40 years to reach its net zero carbon emissions target. Currently, China is ranked second behind the US in terms of total green bonds outstanding, but green bonds account for less than 1% of China's 18 trillion US dollar bond market, so there is plenty of upside and growth potential, provided the market can develop appropriately via regulations, measures, and incentives, along with investor demand. So, those are the headlines and developments we found most interesting over the week of 29 March to April 2nd. Certainly the increased focus on digital investments, as we've seen in several Singapore robo-advisories and other partnerships, is great to see with asset and wealth managers looking to leverage the disintermediation abilities of digital platforms and advisory platforms to really promote investment services to the mass retail investment segment. Also great to see DBS clearly outline its China strategy, and it will certainly be interesting to see how that progresses. We've seen many other foreign institutions look to take either majority or 100% control of securities joint ventures in China, and it will also be interesting to see how their consumer finance will fee really progresses, as that is something that is probably going to take off in the next few years, particularly as China cracks down on fintechs and digital lending platforms. Also excellent to see Citigroup commit to huge headcount increases across Hong Kong to seize on the opportunities contained within the Wealth Management Connect and across the wider Greater Bay Area. And it's also great to see that there's been lots of developments in progress with foreign asset and wealth managers either looking to expand their presence in China or launching new products from their established operations that are already there. But let us know your thoughts in the comments as to whether or not you found these interesting or whether there were certain developments that we didn't cover that you think should have been covered. If you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a like, share, and subscribe for future updates. If you didn't enjoy this episode, thank you for sticking around this long, and let us know in the comments how you think we can improve. From 3Lions AWM Advisory, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you listen in next time.